Welcome to the Wildscast. God didn't design the Seder to put your kids to sleep. Instead, the Seder is an experience for your family should love, treasure, and remember. Have you ever wondered that there might be something more to Passover, the Seder, and in the Haggadah? Something that just might hold the secrets to living a life of joy and meaning that you were intended to. In his book, The Telling, Mark Gerson, host of the Rabbi's Husbands podcast and renowned Jewish philanthropist, shows us how to make the Seder the most engaging, inspiring, and important night of the Jewish year. He and Rabbi Wilds had a great conversation about the book. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, uh, everyone who's just coming on. We're going to give a minute or two for our <laughs> Facebook fans uh, to join in. We also have a whole group uh, of Zoom MGE participants that come on to this class every Monday night. This is actually part of our Monday March Madness series to get everyone ready for Passover. And I have the great honor of uh, introducing someone that I consider a real friend for many years now, my good friend, Mark Gerson, who wrote a phenomenal book that we're going to get into tonight, The Telling, uh, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life by Mark Gerson. Uh, For those of you who do not know, Mark is uh, a lot of things. Um, First of all, he's just a great guy. I can tell you that from personal experience, but he is a, he's an entrepreneur. He's a committed philanthropist and he's a published author. And uh, after graduating from uh, kind of slouch, you know, law school, Yale, uh, he co-founded a number of important groups, um, the Gerson Lerman Group, African Mission Healthcare, and United Hatzalah of Israel. Uh, He is really what I would call Kiddush Hashem, a walking sanctification of God's name, specifically in the founding of those two latter groups. Uh, those of you who may not be familiar with United Hatzalah's life-saving ambulance work in Israel, they literally have saved tens of thousands of lives of our Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel. And Mark and his amazing wife, Erica, uh, also work together to support medical missionary efforts in sub-Saharan Africa. You heard it. Uh, they, along with their four beautiful children, initiated a L'chaim initiative in 2016, which awards a $500,000 investment annually for outstanding Christian medical missionary service uh, in Africa. And they strengthen medical education centers that are training the next uh, generation of African healthcare professionals And these professionals are then prepared and equipped to train others, expanding their medical impact uh, on uh, and across Africa. Uh, Mark has also been very, very supportive of our outreach and educational work of MGE over the years. And as I say, he's a real friend. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you this evening. Um, Thank you for joining. And we're going to be joined uh, a little later on in our program by uh, a number of our regular students and participants from MGE, um, you embrace your Jewish identity unapologetically. I've known that about you for many years. And at the same time, you work closely with Christian medical missionaries. So even before we get into the book, I'm just curious about sure. this. And I think our, our listeners will appreciate this. And, and you started an award specifically for Christian medical missionaries. What inspired you to do that? And what what drew your passions to Africa? Well, it's it, it's a great question, and actually, it, it is um, addressed in the book in the sense that um, we're right now living in a world historic moment that has theological implications, and 
this is this great and new friendship between Jews and Christians. We Jews have been waiting literally 6,000 years for friends like we have today who have emerged in the lifetime of most, most of those watching or listening now. Really, in the last 40 years, this great friendship started, and it's been blossoming and developing before our eyes with our participation in our time ever since. And uh, this great, this is a great friendship. And I know this, um, we can talk about my work in Africa, African Mission Healthcare, but even with uh, the book, The Telling, um, I've been blessed to be able to speak with uh, Christian groups two or three times a day and night. Wow. Yeah, you I mentioned mean, you mentioned before you're, you're being hosted by on Eagle's Wings, which is a very large Christian group. Yeah. So how are they receiving this book? What, what's What's been the... Uh, Oh, it's, it's, it's been, um, I mean, there's this uh, uh, a real thirst um, among so many Christians to rediscover their Jewish roots. And they're doing so out of this profound love for the Jewish people, the Jewish state, and the Jewish religion as is centered in our Torah. And uh, so I've been really so fortunate to be able to uh, study the Bible, really study the Exodus story broadly defined with right now, hundreds of Christian groups. And I teach uh, Torah every Tuesday at uh, 12 o'clock to primarily, but not exclusively if anyone wants to join, uh, Christian pastors. And uh, we're all just studying our shared sacred text together and trying to understand God's word, God's word and figure out how we can how we can live it. But it's, it's this real deep sense of fellowship that's rooted in the text that is uh, emerging in our time. And you don't feel in any way, and I, I don't believe this, but I know a lot of our listeners might be wondering, you're not concerned or nervous in any way that this is somehow, you know, this is what people say, this underhanded kind of attempt to get into the Jewish community and missionize in a more subtle kind of way. Is that at all a concern of yours? No, I, no I've not seen that uh, one time. Uh, no, that, that's not a concern of mine at all. I mean, I've, I'm speaking to Christian groups about the Exodus story now two or three times a day, and uh, and there's been nothing but this really profound love rooted in the text and this incredible respect for all things Jewish. Uh, and I, I've been able to share the what I've learned about the Passover holiday. I mean, the idea that thousands of Christians would want to study the Passover holiday, the quintessential and best ever Jewish holiday with me, it's just, it's, it's, it's uh, or anybody or any Jew, it's, uh, it's, we should just take a step back and realize how incredibly meaningful this is. I mean, could you imagine any of our grandparents putting aside the technology? Forget about that. If 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 anyone in our grandparents' generation would know that there are tens of thousands, probably hundred, probably certainly millions of Christians who would love to study and are studying the Jewish texts, trying to understand the Jewish perspective on it, and around the Passover holiday. Right now, there are tens of thousands of Christian seders. No one even knows the number because it's growing so fast. Wow. I did not. I'm completely unaware. I, oh, yeah. Churches all over the place are doing their own seders. And of course, there are uh, for every Christian seder, there are so many more Christians celebrating the Passover holiday with Jews and uh, really enhancing the experience for all of us who, are, who, who celebrate with Christians. And but so many churches are having Christian seders on their own. Really? Yeah. This is all new. This is in the last several years. So like this, this great friendship is literally happening today. We can participate in it. We are participating in it. It's it's in our time. And I think it has theological implications. Now, in the Exodus story, you know, God tells Moses, uh, you can't see my face. You'll know me by my back. So what are the theological implications of this great friendship? I don't know. Our descendants 
who have a better chance of knowing than we will. But we have this world historic friendship, which is developing and blossoming in our times. There's incredible significance to it. And it's just been such a blessing to be able to participate in it. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you elaborating on it because I think there are just skeptics out there that are like, oh, there's got to be something. We're just not used to people flocking to us to, to come and hear our wisdom. There must right. be some other ulterior motive. And I want you to know you're not the only one I speak with who talks to Christian groups. You know, other rabbis that I know of all denominations are doing this today. Um, I have a dear friend who made Aliyah many years ago. He used to be one of the rabbis at MGE. And he does um, primarily tours in Israel for Christian groups. Um, and he just absolutely loves it. And it's um, it's just been an eye-opening experience, I think, for both groups. So, Kalakavod, uh, keep doing it, man. That's great. Thank you. Now, I want to get into, within the Jewish community, we'll pull out of the Christian realm, but into the Jewish community for a minute. You're a busy guy, okay? You are quite literally trying to save the world with your work with United Hatzalah, with your work in Africa. What made you carve out time to write a book about the Pesach Seder specifically? What is it about the Seder that so fascinates you? Well, about 15 years ago or so, um, I, I realized something, which is that the Haggadah is the greatest book word for word ever written. It is not a dinner program. It's not a holiday manual. It's certainly not a history book. It's definitely not a cookbook. It's the greatest hits of Jewish thought, which is our guidebook for the Seder, but not only for the Seder. It's our great guidebook for life in that every passage, particularly those that are most familiar to most Jews who've been through this every year of our lives, is the most practical and profound Jewish wisdom to help us live better, happier, and more meaningful lives today. And this is what Deuteronomy says about the Torah when it says, this book is for your benefit. So Deuteronomy says, for your benefit. We would say, so you mean self-help book? And the answer is, right, for your benefit and self-help book. It's the same thing. When we read a passage in the Haggadah, all who are hungry, come and eat, the Seder B'nai Barak, it is loaded with meaning that we can extract and use it to improve and enhance our own lives. And it's so much so that I've come to the conclusion that if one reads a passage from the Haggadah or even the Torah and does not see an intensely practical real world implication today, we're not reading the passage right. Beautiful. So I, I, I'm hoping that th this book is going to bring the Seder into where it deserves to be and not just this, like, you know, you were making jokes about a cookbook about this, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, they tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. All of these Jewish holidays get sort of lopped into that. And I've always felt it's such a profound expression of Jewish philosophy in the Haggadah. Absolutely. And it's just like people are just trying to get through it in order to get to dinner quicker. And it's just such pearls of wisdom here. It's a, it's the greatest it's the greatest opportunity on the Jewish calendar to, to really. You know, I think in order to understand the opportunity, we have to consider what Pesach really is. So Pesach in the Bible is the Jewish New Year. It says it shall occur at the head of months. Rosh Hashanah, of course, is when we typically associate with the New Year. It's not in the Bible at all. We're not in the Torah at all. I mean, R Rosh Hashanah is come. It was the Babylonian New Year that we imported after the Babylonian exile. So we have multiple New Years. It's totally fine to celebrate Rosh Hashanah as well. But the primary New Year is Pesach. The idea of multiple New Years is actually not even that interesting. We Americans have many New Years. We have January 1st. We have July 4th, our national New Year. We have our personal New Year on our birthday. We have our relationship New Year on our anniversary. We might have a fiscal New Year teaching us all that a new year is too great an opportunity 
to commemorate and to celebrate and to acknowledge only once every 12 months. So the Passover Seder happens in the new year. And we should really think of it in that framework when we think about what is the Haggadah, what is the Seder? It's this great opportunity to consider how do we do in the previous year? Who am I today? And what kind of person and what kind of people do I want to become in the following year? And the Haggadah exists to help us decide who we want to be in the coming year and to act to become that kind of person or that kind of people. That's interesting. Let's stay on that for a minute because uh, I read that part in your book about the, the Jewish New Year because it's exactly six months into the year. If you start right. the year off when we typically do on Rosh Hashanah, I always like to think of it that uh, there are statements in rabbinic literature that Rosh Hashanah is celebrating the birthday of mankind. But six months later, we look at the purpose of mankind because Chodesh Nisan, the Hebrew month of Nisan, in which the whole story of the Exodus unfolds, it's the birth time, it's springtime for the Jewish people. That's, that's right. really That's really why we live. In other words, Rosh Hashanah might celebrate survival. We exist. Great. But why? Passover is why. Well, oh, you're so right. I mean, you're so right about everything, but about two things in particular. One is, as you mentioned, it's a spring holiday. The Bible says it shall occur in the month of spring. Well, Judaism is on a lunar calendar. Therefore, any given holiday should just circulate through the course of the year. But we have the leap month that affixes, when necessary, I think seven every 19 years, that affixes Pesach in the spring. So why is Pesach in the spring? Why is it so important in the spring that we orient the entire Jewish calendar around Pesach being in the spring? And consequently, all Jewish life is oriented around the fact that Pesach must occur in the spring. Because spring, and we all know this in a sense, because every culture has a spring festival. The American Spring Festival I wrote in the book is the Easter egg hunt on the White House lawn. I was wrong. I realized subsequently, I'll put it in the next edition. <laughs> it's opening day. That's, uh, the Ameri- that's the American Spring yeah, Festival. Yeah. Right? So how do we feel on opening day is how we should feel on Pesach. It's the season of, re- you know, report. It's coming, right? right, right. And then he knew literally Israel fought the Birch Cross. You can feel the God-given opportunity to be something new, to do something new in the coming year. So it is, it is the spring festival, but your previous point about purpose is so important. So I have a chapter in the book called God's business card, right? Because all of us or many of us have a business card with one line on it. Yet we also know we're complex people that that one line cannot completely capture, but we go with it. God, as Maimonides said, speaks in the language of man. So God too has a business card. So if God were to ask any of us, what do you think I should put on my business card? I, before I studied this, would have suggested to God, Put creator of the heaven and the earth, mm-hmm. right? That's God's most impressive technical achievement, creation of the heavens and the earth. It's impossible to beat that. But that's not what he chooses. God chooses, I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt to be your God. God put on his business card, I am the liberator. I am the, per, I am the God, I am God who takes people out of bad places and brings them to better places. I am God who takes people out of slavery and brings them to freedom. That's how I want to be defined as the liberator. So if God is saying, I want to be defined as the liberator because that is my purpose, creator of the heavens and the earth, one can reply, so what? Right. What's the point? Right. You created the heavens and the earth. What's the point? As the liberator, you wouldn't ask that question because it's answered in the question. God says, my purpose is the liberator. And therefore, if God defines himself by his purpose and we are created in God's image, then we too must have a purpose and we should as well define ourselves by our purpose. Then the question becomes, well, what is my purpose and what kind of God would let us live 
for however many years he lets us live. And at the end of it all say, haha, you didn't figure out your purpose. Like that would be only a ridiculous God. And our God is not ridiculous. Therefore, God must have given each of us a purpose that's pretty easy for us to figure out. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It's actually one of the greatest principles of the Jewish faith, not to simply subscribe to a God of creation, but to a God of history. And that is unfortunately not the God that I think a lot of us were introduced to in, in our youth. You know, God is the creator of heaven and earth. And we say that in the Kiddush on Friday night and Shabbat. And he's this, you know, big guy in the sky that created a long, nothing to do with and that's one of the reasons why the Exodus, I think, looms so large in, 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 in Torah, biblical, rabbinic. It's such a, you know, we don't always sit at the Seder tables, you know, once a year. We say the Shema, we think about the Exodus every day, and we, we obsess over it. Right, exactly. And, and the reason we do is because it's to emphasize this idea that God is not simply a creator, to, you know, set the world on automatic timer, you know, like the watchmaker, you know, the, the, the clock just puts it going, takes off. No, he's involved. Um, and, um, that's a really powerful point, um, that I think, you know, that, that, by the way, that's what also creates theological issues for us, because if God's involved then how come he took our ancestors out of Egypt, but he didn't save the 6 million from the Shoah. And if God's, but I always like to point this out that the only reason you have such a question is because deep down you do believe that God is involved. Because if you didn't think he was involved and he was Great just point. a creator, he's just a creator, you want to ask such a question, you would be like, what do you mean? He just created the world. But if you believe that he's really involved, then how come he was, you know, he did this and didn't do that? I mean, it's a very solid, we're not going to get into that right now, but I just think that's such a fundamental Jewish principle and the Exodus really drives that home. That's amazing. Well, right, and, 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 you know, look at manna, which is, of course, the food that got us through the desert. One would think, well, what is manna? God could have given us some kosher equivalent of spam, you know, just enough protein to fill us up for as long a period as possible. Instead, the Bible describes manna as cakes fried in honey. So this is the God who cares about whether we enjoy our lunch. And if he cares about that, he cares about everything. And so, you know, in the book, I say we don't have a God of history who's sitting above it and observing. We have a God in history. In history. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with that because we don't quite always understand Um God's hand in history. The Exodus is one of those incidents where you could really see it and you can see God's grace and benevolence to mankind, to humankind. We don't always see that in every other event in history. So then people start questioning. But as I say, you know, I, I just think that's such a fundamental teaching. And, and, and well, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think part of that teaching is revealed in the lice plague, you know, the third plague when it says that. Uh, the, the, the Pharaoh's magicians couldn't do the plague because they said this must be the finger of God because they can't do the plague. This is a manifestation of what Rabbi Sachs calls the strangely persistent idea of the God of the gaps, right? Which is, why it's got, it's got what's the God of the gaps? When we can't explain something, we say, oh, it's God. And then we figure it out and God disappears. But how did that happen? And so the example I give in the book is, let's take three hypotheticals. One is someone goes to the hospital. The doctor says, you're not going to make it through the night. Then the next day, the patient's walking around the room asking when he can be discharged. You might say that's a miracle. God was there. The second patient goes in with the same condition two years later. And they said, you know, in the last year, we got a drug approved for that. Take the drug and you'll be fine in the morning. We don't attribute it to God. In the third example, the person didn't get sick. Uh, right. So where's God most evident? Well, I would rather not get sick. Right. So therefore, we should we should thank God for not making me sick because that's what I would choose. Right. So but the God of the gaps is that and this was coined uh, by the Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond in 1894, God of the Gaps, this ridiculous idea. 
a gap, a gap meaning that where you don't see him. So well, the gap meaning that you can't explain it. So, uh, so, so when we say, oh, I can't explain why he or she got healthy, it must be God. But now all of a sudden we have a drug that you took and now we can explain it. And we don't attribute it to God. So this is Henry Drummond's God of the gaps, which makes no sense because what? Uh, d- day one, we didn't have the, the patient got better without the, without the use of drugs. And then through God's God-given intelligence, people figured out how to cure it medically. Patient B takes it and all of a sudden we don't acknowledge God. Like right. We should acknowledge God more. Yeah, it's an amazing point. It's an amazing point. Tell, tell us a little about the, um, you wrote in your book, you spoke about one of my favorite lines at the beginning of the Seder. We get up, we open up the door symbolically, let the world know. We say, whoever is hungry, let him come and eat. Whoever is needy, let him come and celebrate Passover. Now, we make that statement after we're there already. Okay, maybe we haven't done a lot of the rituals of the Seder yet, but it seems like a little of an insincere invitation. Like, Usually, I email somebody, text them a week, would you like to join us at the Seder? Okay, here, you're sitting there like a big shot. Anybody wants to come? Like, what's the deal with that? Right. Uh, Well, yes, in in the book, I call this the strangest invitation because we don't extend invitations once the event is ongoing. But in this case, we seem to because everyone's seated at the Seder table. And now we say all who are hungry, come and eat, all who are needy, come and let them celebrate uh, Passover. Now, I think the answer, the resolution of this strange, the seeming strangeness is revealed in the Hebrew word panim. So there's no Hebrew word for face in the singular. There's no way in Hebrew to describe just one face. Interesting. We have, pan, we have panim, and, which is plural. So acknowledging we all have many faces. Nobody has just one face. We all have many faces. And we all know this intuitively. We have a different face when we're playing with our children or our grandchildren or in a job interview or watching a football game. And we have a different face on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and wherever. So we all have multiple faces. This invitation is saying, the person not being invited is the tough guy, the invulnerable guy, the person who has no questions or knows all the answers. He's not invited. Who's invited? It's the broken face. It's what Rob Alexandri said in the Talmud, that, that just as you would not invite someone into your home and serve them with broken vessels, God only works through broken vessels. So we're being invited in our capacity as broken people. But then we separate brokenness into hungry and needy. And we say, so what am I hungry for? What does it mean to be hungry? Well, Shimon Perez was asked, what is the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity? And he said, he didn't pay, he had a lot to choose from. He was a great champion of Israeli entrepreneurship and Jewish innovation. Yet he chose dissatisfaction. So the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity is dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. And I think this is exactly explained in the Haggadah, because if we say after a great meal to somebody, how do you feel? They might say, I feel satisfied. In other words, I'm not hungry. Right. But when we're dissatisfied, we feel hunger. That's the physical manifestation of dissatisfaction. So when we sit down at the Seder, we should ask ourselves and encourage our guests to ask, what are you hungry for? In other words, what are you dissatisfied by? And I think the answer has got to be in two parts. One, what about myself am I dissatisfied by and hungry for? What do I want to change about myself spiritually? And what do I want to change for others materially? And because we should always be in a persistent state of dissatisfaction with ourselves spiritually and with the world materially and always be working to improve it. And then needy, all who are needy, let them come and celebrate Passover. Independence just might be the most overrated idea in American culture. I mean, imagine, uh, Mark, if you were at MJE and you went up to a student who you hadn't seen in a while and you said, how are you doing? And the student said, you know, I'm, I, I'm really independent. I'm so independent, in fact, that I don't need anybody and nobody needs me because that's the definition of independence. You know, what would you say to that student? 
you know, it would, it's so sad. It's so sad. Yeah. And but, so we don't, as Jews or even not Jews, we don't want to be independent. We say it, but we don't mean a word of it. We want, nor do we want to be dependent. We want to see thick bonds of interdependence, which really constitute community. When we sit at our Seder table, we sit at our Shabbat table. So we all want to be needy. I mean, I like to say I live in an assisted living facility, right? You know, it's <laughs> totally assisted by lots and lots of people and institutions in my life. And I, I think that's, that's what it means to be needy. We all live in an assisted living facility. I love that, Mark. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I'll share with you. I may, you know, you and I have studied for many years. I may have shared this with you in the past. Of Salvatics, I love your interpretations. I love what you wrote in that chapter of the book. Of Salvatics said also, like you said, which is not—it's not a real invitation. It's trying to teach something, because, and he said that what it's trying to teach is what a Jew does with their freedom. Meaning, you're right, if you really wanted to invite someone else, you should have done it before the holiday started, not wait for the Seder to begin. But what it's demonstrating is, okay, we're free. See, that also is a juxtaposition between American freedom and Jewish freedom, because American freedom celebrates freedom for the sake of freedom, which, by the way, is the way it should be, so that everyone can choose in the United States how they want to live their lives. If separation of church and state, your values should come from your religion, shouldn't come from the government necessarily. So be free for what? So Rosalovich said free to extend dinner invitations to other people. Oh, very That's interesting. That's what you're doing with your freedom. You're, I'm here celebrating. This is what now I'm not really inviting, but I'm saying this is how I choose to use my free time, my resources, my blessings in my life by sharing it with others. Well, yeah, that, that's that's so, so interesting. And uh but you're so right about how important it is to correctly define freedom, because there's that great song, Let My People Go. The biblical verse never ends there. Every single time Moses says it, which is many, it's always, let my people go so they might right. serve me. Shalachat ami ve'ya'avduni. I know. By the way, it's the same thing. The whole Jewish world has taken the concept of tikkun olam, which is a very Jewish idea. But the verse is, letaken olam b'malchut shakai, to rectify or perfect the world and the kingdom of God. We always like, we kind of erase that latter part. Oh, but anyway, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of but similar. freedom in the biblical imagination always has a purpose. Freedom is not follow my bliss. Freedom is not do whatever I want so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Which, by the way, that just might be the dumbest thing anybody ever said. Because everything we do either helps or harms, either detracts or enhances. There's no action we take that doesn't do one of those things. Everything we do is either for better or for worse for other people. So there's no notion of doing something that doesn't harm or help somebody. Everything we do harms or helps somebody. It's just a matter of which. And so I think the Bible, is, as always, is exactly right here, that freedom, that there is a notion of doing freedom well. And one of the functions of the Seder and the Haggadah is to teach us how to do freedom well. And, and this is why. So what does the word Seder mean? Of course, it means order. But I thought this is our festival of freedom. Why are we celebrating our festival of freedom on a night called order? I thought those were opposites, a lot of people would say. If I'm free, then I can do whatever I want with no ordered structure. But if I'm in an ordered structure, then I can't do whatever I want. But Judaism says, no, they're completely reconciled that in order to do freedom well, you have to do it within a structure of order. Yeah, totally. But and the reason I pulled these papers as you're speaking, there's so many Jewish teachings on that idea that unless you have structure... The word cherut is, it's actually a, mo it's a modern Hebrew word also, but it's in the Torah. Cherut is freedom. It's, it's I'm just trying to find the source for this. The Talmud says somewhere that you should not read the word cherut, but charut, 
because the Torah refers to the Ten Commandments as charut al haluchot, engraved. The word charut means engraved on the stones. And the sages teach, don't read the word as charut, as engraved, but rather charut or freedom. That the Torah and its mitzvot are really a path to live a life of much more in line with your higher selves. And this is something you actually touched on in the book as well. You mentioned the um, the word Mitzrayim right. from, from that uh, Egypt, right? But it comes from the term Mitzar, which means narrow, right? What keeps us confined? What enslaves us, right? And how can the Torah free us to be our true selves? But it's got to be it's got to be to something greater. And that's, we don't quite get that because we, and that's hard because, you know, we say that God we, took us out of Egypt, freed us from Pharaoh to become servants of God. Right. But to become servants of God. Yeah, exactly. And, and so how do we do freedom? Well, that, that so they might serve me clause that follows, let my people go tells us there is such a thing as doing freedom. Well, and the purpose of freedom is to do it well. And I think we know how right the, the it, it is, how right Judaism's teaching is that freedom done well must be done within order because we can ask the question, do I have the freedom right now to go in the other room and play beautiful music on the piano? Well, in one sense, it's not illegal enough. It is, right? So I don't know the order. They're dying on the keys, but I have no freedom to play beautiful music because I've not mastered the order. Um, so in order to do, to live freedom well, we have to do so within order. And this is the great reconciliation of these two ideas of freedom and order. Beautiful, beautiful. This is another question, page 87. And I found this very, very powerful. I blogged about this a couple of years ago, um, but I, I learned a lot from this. You said that there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been before. Right. And uh, um, so tell us a little about that. And um, what does the Haggadah tell us about let's say, eradicating that kind of slavery today. Yeah, I mean, so I think we come to the famous passage in the Haggadah that now we are slaves, next year maybe we be free people. We should, we should well, first, every, I, I think on Seder night, it's a very useful discipline to commit ourselves to meaning everything we say. So on this night, when we say something, we're going to have to mean it. And therefore, if I say, if I come to a passage that I don't believe, I'm either not going to say it, or I'm going to ask others to explain it. Maybe I'll be convinced, maybe I won't, but if I don't believe, I'm not going to say it. So when we say now we are slaves, we have to mean it. So when we say now we are slaves, I think two things come to mind. One, the first thing is, well, I don't feel like a slave because I'm the most blessed guy. I have, I mean, I've, I've, I'm free. I'm not a slave. I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to have this freedom that I enjoy. And right by the way, if you don't, I'm just jumping. I, I've been for the last 12 years, a scholar in residence in these hotels in Florida and everybody's right. sitting there in these like five-star um hotels like saying we're slaves as the you know team of waiters come and serve us our dinner well wow. yeah, anyway you just just please no that's continue. so interesting i mean yeah and so i i think when we say that the first thing we have to say is actually i'm not so we, we can get to how we might be and what we might have in common with slaves and that's in the book but the first thing that should come to mind and your example is so perfect is i'm not i'm totally free i'm not but others are so when we say now we are we should think just logically and rationally I'm actually not, but others are. And then we look at the data and it's horrifying. And we and we listen and we read the stories or we watch the stories and it's 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 unbearable. There are now more there are now more slaves in the world than there ever have been before. There are now 40 million people who are enslaved, who are juridically, legally 
enslaved, not metaphorically enslaved, and we can talk about what that might mean, but literally enslaved. And within 10 miles of any Seder in any American city, there will be slaves. From where I am and I see where you are right now, there within 10 miles, there are slaves, often sex slaves, but there are slaves. And so um, when we come let's, to this passage, we... So let, let's get specific. You were saying um, you yeah. wrote here tens of thousands of slaves live in the United States, young girls... Uh, lured into sex slavery, addicted to drugs by pimps who require them to have sex with dozens of men each day. These right. girls often branded with tattoos signifying which slave master they belong to. Um, you mentioned earlier in India, chattel slaves, um, fishing slaves in Ghana, uh, construction slaves in North Korea. I, I'm just reading this because you know we're just so sheltered in the yeah. West from what is going on um, throughout the world. So that so that's one explanation. Um, what about considering ourselves? So that's, that's others, let's say. For right. Right. And I, I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. The first thing that should come to mind is, whoa, you know, I'm like every, everyone you're talking about say, whoa, I'm not a slave. Like, uh, and then when we say that we first are grateful and then immediately thereafter we say, but 40 million people are, and what am I going to do about it? And, and, you know, and what am I going to do about it? So important because, you know, in the Haggadah and of course in the Bible, it says God remembered, God remembered what God forgot. And no, God doesn't forget. God didn't, Said so God remembered Noah. Oh yeah, that guy who's who's on the in the sea for forty days. Oh yeah, him. No, it's it's not like remembering in the biblical imagination is not the opposite of forgetting. It's a call to action. Every time it says God remembers, He's about to act. So when we say, "Thank God I'm not a slave, but others are," we have to act, or else or else Judaism does not dignify mere cognitive awareness of something with anything. That that that's nothing. If you're just aware of something, it's not even when you remember something, you do. So, but when we say now we are slaves. So I think we say, no, I'm not, but also I just did say now I'm a slave, so what can I mean? So the one of the characteristics of a slave is a slave has no control over his or her time, right? Is that, and so, yeah. so when, when we think about it, if we say now I'm, if we say I am a slave and I seek to be more free, we should think about the idea of time. And there's this beautiful American expression that's really so apt, which is how are you going to spend your time? I love that analogy, spend your time. Because when you say spend time, what we're acknowledging is that it's a precious and limited resource that's up to us to choose how to how to how to allocate it. So as we enter the new year, right after Pesach, we should consider this sacred gift of time and we should say, How am I going to spend it? Am I going to waste time? And what would be wasting time in each of our lives? Am I going to, God forbid, kill time? Or am I going to sanctify time? And what would it mean to sanctify time? And what it means to be free is sanctifying time. And again, let's please let's not think of sanctity as some ethereal, abstract, religious, so to speak, concept. It's totally practical. Let's talk about how we can sanctify time. Let's say we're on a long line somewhere. I don't know where. It doesn't matter where. We're on a long line somewhere. Well, Trader we Joe's. Trader Joe's. Everybody's on Trader Joe lines. Yeah, sure. Days. So we yeah. So we can be on we can be online at Trader Joe's. What thing we can do? We can be we can get mad at ourselves for coming at this moment instead of another moment. We imagine there would be not so much of a line. We can get frustrated at the line. We can think they should have opened more aisles, whatever. Or we can think nothing. Or what's the third option? We can say, okay, I've got 20 minutes here. Um, my great aunt, you know, I, I think she's living alone and I'm not sure how many people have called her recently. I'm going to take out my phone and just check in. We've just sanctified that moment. Um, so we can, beautiful. we can, Take out our phones. I mean, we have our. We can study Torah on our phones. Imagine explaining that to our grandparents. I study Torah <laughs> on my phone. I mean, both. But it's not even interesting to us because we can do it, right? So we take out our phone and study Torah. Call our great aunt. 
We can sanctify any time. It's just our choice. Now, I'm taking out the Bible here because Exodus 12, 2, it says this, this shall be a new month for you. I just want to get this exactly right. Let's go to Exodus 12, 12 2. 2. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be for you the first of the months of the year. Okay, and I think it was Sporno who asked, why all these for yous? Why doesn't it just say this month shall be the beginning of months? Why for you? And the reason why the Bible has for you, and every word in the Bible, of course, is meaningful. The reason why it says for you, it's it's for you to do with what you will. This is the beginning of months for you. In other words, it's going to be different than it is for him or her or somebody else or they. This is the beginning of the months for you. So how we choose to spend our time is a biblical obligation right here from 12.2. It's the beginning of the months for you. And this 12.2, Rosh Hodesh actually immediately precedes Pesach. So we're kind of in the in the mood or in the sense to understand Pesach when we first see that to you and we realize, wow, what it means to be free is to be given the ability to sanctify time. This is the beginning of the months for you. And then we can begin to think, how am I going to sanctify time every day? And you know, one of the things we're talking about before is how the dumbest thing anyone ever said is I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Everything we do is 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 making some actionable judgment about time. You know, let's say we get up a half hour earlier than we otherwise wouldn't have. Well, that affected somebody because how do we spend that half hour? Maybe we'll study. Maybe we'll call somebody. Maybe we can sanctify that half hour. But every moment's an opportunity to sanctify that time. That's beautiful. Uh, by the way, and we're going to bring on our, our listeners in a minute. Um, Abraham Heschel, who I know you know, uh, his writings, phenomenal book he wrote called The Sabbath. Uh, it's really an, an exploration of this very concept of what we do with time, because he argues there that the two physical human dimensions of time and space, he says that humans usually do a better job at sanctifying space at the cost of sanctifying time. We usually give up time for space because we're into things. And he says that Shabbat is all about challenging our obsession with thinkiness. With, with just physical objects, because Shabbat is ultimately an opportunity to sanctify time, to elevate time. And he says something also interesting, whereas it was Moses, a human being, great prophet, but is still a human being who sanctified space, the tabernacle. God told Moses to basically anoint and to inaugurate the tabernacle. It was God himself who sanctified time in the beginning of creation. Oh, very interesting. Right. Shabbat. Uh, and we say it every Friday night in our Kiddush, that it was it was God. So he says, as, as important it is, the tabernacle, we're reading about that now, and, and beautiful places and synagogues and temples, but it's nothing compared to what you do with your time. That's a really great teaching, Mark. Beautiful. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.